Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangeley. With me as always, my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Thursday, January 19th, and today we're talking about Tesla opening up the Gigafactory and hiring a former Apple exec. Uh, and then we're going to discuss Howard Mark's latest memo, Expert Opinion. Uh, so, Chris, Tesla, you know, we talk about them a lot, but I feel like when you're out to change the world in just almost every facet and colonize Mars, we can talk about you a lot. They've had a big start to the year. On January 4th, they turned uh, the production on on their Gigafactory in Sparks, Nevada. Uh, now, this is just phase one of the Gigafactory, but when it's completed in 2018, as they say, it will be the world's biggest factory at a cost of almost $5 billion dollars. Uh, the scale of this thing at full ramp is just astronomical. It alone will double the world's production capacity for lithium-ion batteries. Uh, you know, the real reason they're making this is ion batteries are kind of one of the limiting factors on making electric cars now. So by making their own at this big of scale, they can kind of use it to help accelerate their uh their own car making and they're hoping also getting the scale will let them cut into the pricing of batteries. And then yesterday they hired uh, Tesla or Tesla hired former Apple executive Chris Leitner, Latner, Latner to head its autopilot effort. Uh, and this is part of an ambitious goal by Elon Musk to have a car self-drive from Los Angeles to New York City without the need for a single human touch by the end of this year. Uh, you know, this is a really ambitious move. I was reading some tech blogs that were calling him the most important person in Apple's software strategy and daring fireball with the tech blog. They, they said, you know, last year the question was, will Apple compete with Tesla in cars? And now the question with this move becomes no longer is Apple going to compete in cars. It's will Tesla compete with Apple on computing? So I've talked a lot. Chris, let, what do you think about all these moves by Tesla? Well, I think we're allowed to talk about Elon Musk more than we talk about just kind of an average person or even an average CEO. Well, we can talk to him at least three times as much because he's the head of three companies. I mean, I think the amazing thing about this guy is Hyperloop's kind of like the fourth tier thing on his mind. Uh, it's like the fourth coolest thing he's doing. Um, but uh, no, really an amazing uh, leader. Uh, Tesla uh, is an amazing company. And, and the scale of what he's doing in Nevada is rather spectacular. I think a lot of people would just kind of say, oh, you know, wring their hands. You know, there's this economy of scale problem. How do we ever shift to electric and the answer is well you need a massive scale the people who've come closest to this massive scale factory for solving uh, the price problems have mostly been the Chinese and the Koreans I mean the Koreans have really done it with say uh, uh, large uh, monitors and they've done it in other things where they can just do these massive scale um, and he's really doing it uh, with the Gigafactory on uh, lithium batteries I mean I can't think offhand of another single entrepreneur with a single manufacturing solution that was such a high percentage of the incumbent industry offhand. It's just incredible. It's And, and you know, I think you're exactly right. And the scale, you kind of say $5 billion, and that alone is a huge number. The doubling, as you talked about, that's a huge number. But just every time we talk about them, and I was telling you before the podcast, I started reading uh, Ashley Vance's biography of Elon Musk a couple days ago. Just every time we talk about them or every time I learn a little bit more, just the pure scale of not just these companies, but the complexity and the scale of their ambitions, it's just shocking to me. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. 
Hopefully Apple has a good sense of humor about losing uh, Chris uh, Latner. Uh, historically, these companies, actually much like in our industry, in the hedge fund industry, uh, people are not uh, uh, in good humor about poaching a talent. And occasionally they even have antitrust <laughs> problems with this about kind of thinking, you know, somebody just goes someplace else because they have a better job. And they think, how dare they? I mean, it's really the sense of broken uh, you know, betrayal. It, it's kind of funny because in 2015, when, as we talked about earlier, people were wondering, is Apple going to come for Tesla at, in cars? Elon Musk famously said, oh, Apple's Apple's what we internally refer to as the graveyard for fired Tesla staffers. So <laughs> it's kind of funny that they would make such a high-profile hire right out of Apple. Yeah. Yeah. But look, I, I think... I think this is all interesting. Uh, you know, politically, if you think we've talked a lot about on this podcast, uh, bringing jobs back to America is clearly a focus of this administration. Tesla, you know, from 2008 to 2016, the federal tax credit for they, – they were really relying on federal subsidies and federal tax credits. Going forward, I mean – it seems like they're just so well positioned for goodwill. They make all of their they make all of their own components mm-hmm. internally. They're going to have five six thousand jobs that they're going to hire for in Nevada. So politically, I think it's interesting. And but going forward, I think there's still some huge questions on the stock. I'll let you talk about them if you want to. Or... Oh, it's it's perfect politically. Uh, it is it is huge uh, as as the president elect huge huge. huge. Say. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of jobs involved. Uh, he's perfect for this political climate. He's very politically savvy, and if you even think about the location in Nevada, uh, it is close enough to California, but kind of across the border. I mean, I always thought I always thought that Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side was one of the most perfect political environments because you have no state income tax, but you're still pretty close to California and in a beautiful environment. Uh, and uh, he's kind of doing the same thing for his company. He certainly got a good deal. He he when he was uh, at the opening, he kind of disclaimed uh, the location being too driven by the package of benefits he was given, but he was given a good package of benefits. Yeah. Hey, and look, this is bringing five, six thousand jobs, five, six thousand new jobs, a five billion dollar investment. You kind of can't fault a company uh, or a state for saying, yeah, we can probably give you a little bit of a package yeah. to come revolutionize an industry over yeah, here. Yeah, if, if ever it made sense, it might make sense for him. Uh, at the same time, it's appropriate to be in Nevada as it's a gamble. And I think the biggest way in which uh, it is a gamble is that he is a uh, entrepreneur. Tesla is a startup. They have done incredibly well dealing at this very high end, high price point, uh, low market share relative to autos overall. But they're creating an environment where it's going to be both a lower price point and very high market share. And I think that every incumbent uh, is not only uh, prepared for this environment, but it's a little hard to see all the competition coming. You can very clearly see Tesla when it is kind of from a supply and demand of investments focused on, on electric vehicles. It's the one. But... 12, 24, 36 months from now, it will no longer be the only supply and the supply and demand for investing in electric uh, as, a, as a standalone. Yeah, look, I, I think that's exactly right. I think there's two interesting things. You mentioned they've done a great job at the high end and mm-hmm. now they're trying to move into the low end. I just think it's interesting, you know, traditionally kind of the innovator's dilemma model said innovation starts at the super cheap low end mm-hmm. and then it moves up high end. So they're kind of going in the reverse in that aspect. It's I'm not saying that's wrong. That's exactly right here, but it's just interesting they're going reverse. But you're certainly right. Increasingly, Tesla is a bet on 
it's kind of a binary. Can they get the uh, Gigafactory up and running? Can they get the Model 3 up in productions by the end of this year, as they've promised? Can they kind of beat all the competition and get the network effect of having the supercharger, having the autopilots, all that sort of... Can they get it up and running before kind of the big car players can? Because they're obviously talking about this year, next year, doing all that. If you look at Ford, you look at GM, they're probably saying like 2020 is really where they start shifting to all that. So can they kind of beat them to the punch? It's an increasingly big, increasingly binary bet, I would say. He, he's clearly charismatic. He has a big buy-in from the loyalists and fanatics. That buy-in is absolutely necessary because he keeps needing to raise capital. Uh, uh, but it also is necessary to kind of keep that base really uh, enthused uh, so that they'll hopefully be a little permissive if the schedule slips. Uh, but uh, while they might be permissive, the uh, competition won't. I mean, the schedule really matters. Yeah, yeah, uh, great. Uh, you know, just the last thing on buying, our, our, your friend Whitney Tilson sent around mm-hmm. an email, and I thought one of his interesting things was, you know, he was talking about the buying you're talking about, and he was saying, look, if you're an engineer and you want to go work at the best place, you're not going to go work for a GM or a Ford. You're going to go work for Tesla. Yeah. You're going to go work for Elon Musk's grand ambitions. And you were seeing like that alone because the best engineer is worth 10, 100 times more than the second best engineer. Mm-hmm. That alone could be the reason to bet on Tesla kind of beating all the big incumbents. But he, he, he knows talent so well and he's doing there just what he's mm-hmm. – um, doing at his uh, his rocket company at SpaceX too. I, I have family that works at JPL, and JPL they say it's like invasion of the body snatchers. You'll just come in from work, and they'll even have a team, and somebody will just be gone, and it'll frequently be the very best. And they're just they're just everybody who gets offers from him in senior positions take them. Perfect, perfect. Let's end it there, and let's turn over to Howard Marks. Uh, Howard Marks published his most recent letter, Expert Opinion, yesterday. Now, uh, our more casual listeners might not know who Howard Marks is. He is the chairman and founder of Oak Tree, which is kind of a little bit off the beaten path because it's mainly a high-yield and distress group, which means its investments aren't kind of as big as the higher-profile equity players. But uh, they have a fantastic track record, and his letters are widely read around Wall Street. He actually compiled his letters into a book, The Most Important Thing, in 2011. And Warren Buffett, he's quoted on the front cover saying, this is that rarity, a useful book. So clearly his letters are highly respected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his current letter discusses how in the wake of Brexit and Trump's election, he is both questioning the weighting given to expert opinions and the value of following uh, kind of the media narrative. Uh, so, Chris, I'll turn it over to you with your, your first thoughts on this. Uh, my first thoughts, let me start with a positive. Um, I agree 100% with his uh, reflecting coming out of the wake of Brexit yeah. and Trump. Uh, and we've I talked agree, about that on this yeah, podcast I, I, before, I agree 100% yeah. with his concern about wasting too much time following news. I think that that's very valid. One of the cases I've really noticed this is whenever I travel, I try to remember. To, I still I still get physical paper uh, newspapers, mm-hmm. and every once in a while, either I will forget or they will forget if I've tried to cancel them. And, and I'll come home to a stack of newspapers, and there will be something that is incredibly inflammatory, maybe upsetting, kind of dramatic uh, about some uh, you know stock price plummeting or stock price uh, flying. But it will have been 
repudiated two or three times yeah. just in the 10 days that you were gone. And you're like, well, if this seems so dramatic at the time and now just a few days later, it's no longer even the case, you're only able to be ripped around emotionally because for that moment, it's the newest information. But even with five days or 10 days removed, it's not salient anymore. And so getting hyper wrapped up on the kind of arrogance of the presence, the arrogance that what is happening now is important because it's current. Stepping back from that makes a lot of sense. Look, I, I think that's so spot on with what what I wanted to say. You know, the article has an anecdote in there how uh, a writer walked into the front office of a football team and he was surprised because they were all watching ESPN to see what ESPN thought about something. And he was like, don't you guys have better sources than ESPN? And it was a way of saying like, even the insiders are subject to groupthink. And, you know, in finance, we increasingly see that where the narrative is dictated by what the stock price does. So, you know, Donald Trump speaks and stocks go up. Donald Trump is a free market genius who understands how to unleash the economy. Donald Trump speaks and stocks go down. And Donald Trump is a madman who's going to turn this country into a circus. And increasingly, it's just whatever the reaction is dictates how the story is. But he's the same guy either way, you know? There's two behaviors that I think, um, one that he points to and one that I'll add, uh, that really get you away from this fixation on the news cycle is one uh, just rededicating some of your time from articles to books Mm -hmm. Uh, and secondly rededicating some of your time if you're an investor especially a professional investor that kind of tags along around kind of corporate events rededicating some time to industry conferences on, on the operating side of a business away from investing in financial conferences yes. just to learn about the business. So you're kind, of, you're kind of saying instead of going to the broker restaurant yep. conference, go to the restaurant conference for restaurant managers exactly. where the restaurants are and kind of get the real scoop there. I, I think that makes tons of sense. And then, you know, I want to talk about one more thing along kind of a, a related line. You know, he talks about how Leading up to the election, uh, Hillary Clinton's organization was seen as super sophisticated while Trump's was seen as kind of ragtag. And now the hindsight narrative is Trump's was super sophisticated and effective while Hillary Clinton's uh, team missed kind of key data points. And it's interesting just like the path dependency of maybe path dependencies, just how the outcome drives the narrative and hindsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just really think that's interesting too. I don't know if you want to. No, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, it's possible in theory to be very mature about focusing on probabilities, focusing on thinking probabilistically and trying to be very mature about not overweighting wins and losses. I can't do that at all. The only uh, kind of weak uh, 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 proxy I can use for maturity is to at least journal and pay attention to what I was thinking at the time in a way that I can hold myself back to and say, wait a second, I'm feeling like that guy is a genius because now I knew he performed well last year or that politician's a genius because I knew they won. Like, I, I can't get away from that. I wish I could, but I can look to what I said at the time and at least remember and hold myself accountable. Spot on with exactly where I was trying to go with this. Just, you know, we, we've been in a historic eight-year bull market and you see, we're, we're going to see a lot of 2017 letters from managers start coming out. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the best strategy last year would have been to borrow as much money as you yep. could and go long the stock market, mm-hmm. right? You would have made a killing. That doesn't mean you're a genius. It just made you made a means you made a highly levered bet. And what you really need to see if you to see how people have performed is you really need to see like 
their thesis laid out ahead of time. Hey, here's why I'm buying this stock. Here's what I think will happen. Here's kind of the range of probabilities. And then see how that plays all out over several different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So right now, kind of the past couple of years have all been bull markets, but we need to see how they'll play out over bear markets. And, uh, you know, that's just the worry I have when we kind of base things we see over the past couple of years, if that makes sense. Also, safety is not highly symmetrical in that if you have certain types of losses, you not only lose money, but you can lose reputation, you can lose your business, you can interfere with the ability to have the game continue. If you drink a fifth of Jack Daniels and drive home, you will probably survive. If you do, it doesn't make it smart. It's still stupid. And it's still stupid after you survived. And the survival is not that interesting a point relative to something that is horrendously terrible in terms of the probabilities where one ends the game, possibly for you, possibly for others. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but it's kind of, if you find something right now that is risk-free, and, you know, cash right now yields basically nothing, and you find something that's risk-free that will mature over a year, and for some reason the market's giving you at 5% annualized, that's a fantastic investment. And if you make that investment and the stock market goes up 30%, you look like a, a fool, even though you risk-adjusted, you made an incredible investment. That's the sort of thing. But if the market goes down 30%, you're a genius. So just everything needs to be risk-adjusted. Yeah. And I think that can kind of fall off both in bull markets and bear markets. Yeah. So go ahead. Five seconds and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, I think the experts have a place. Uh, experts uh, such as he mentioned 538, I think Love some them. did yep. very well actually uh, and were useful uh, even if they didn't specifically predict what happened uh, and then lastly I think that even for people who think probabilistic knowing experts so you know what the market implied probabilities are of events mm-hmm. that you want to separately think about even if your view is different perfect well that was great but that's all the time we have for today just before we hit our disclosures a quick reminder uh, if you have any feedback feedback for us please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com we got some really funny feedback over the past weekend I was kind of laughing but I I can't remember specifically what they said, but it was great. Uh, So thanks for all the feedback this weekend. Chris, any disclosures? I have none. Okay, no disclosures for Chris, no disclosures for me. We will talk to you guys next week.